Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. I'm your host, Chad Kim. As we get started up again after our hiatus, only Trevor was able to be with me uh, as we talk about Book 3 from the Ecclesiastical History of Eusebius. This is a critical book that surrounds the questions about the origin of Scripture. Tom Velasco was still finishing up a few things with school and couldn't make it. Our conversation this week centers around the question of canon or Scripture. Eusebius' Church History Book 3 has probably the longest treatment about the question of what should be included as scripture of any one from the first couple hundred years of the church. It fits with his comprehensive approach to what has happened in the Christian community since Christ's resurrection. I mentioned a few different lists of books that were read as scripture from other sources, but none of them treat as comprehensively why they were included. One I mention is the Muraturian Canon. This fragment appears to have been created in response to a heresy developing in the 2nd century by a guy called Marcion. Marcion tried to cut out the Old Testament and all the Gospels save Luke and the letters of Paul. This appears to have been the impetus for the beginning conversation of what was and was not Scripture. We end our conversation with a lesser-known doctrine to Protestants that refers to what happened at Pentecost. Roman Catholic teaching states that Peter was given all necessary Christian truth through the Holy Spirit. There have been various explanations of how that was possible, which we discuss. This teaching becomes more and more important as theology develops several centuries later. We will be back next week with a further discussion of Eusebius. Hopefully, from here on out, we will be recording podcasts on a weekly basis again. Sorry for the erratic postings. It was a crazy final two months of school for me. Now, to the conversation. Thanks for listening. Well, um, let's let's start. I mean, right from the start. Um, so we're reading book three of Eusebius Accessorius uh, Church Histories. Um, and although this we discussed this in our first podcast on Eusebius, Eusebius is primarily known for his historical contributions rather than his sort of systematic theology. Uh, that being said, this book three is very influential in terms of um, a doctrine of, of scripture, um, specifically what is scripture and what isn't scripture. And it gives us a glimpse into the way that early theologians uh, viewed the process of canonization. Um, so right off the bat uh, in like paragraph three, he mentions some writings from Peter. Um, and he actually says that only the first epistle is accepted and the earlier fathers used it as undisputed in their writings. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know what, what, uh, I can, I could say some stuff in a minute from my takeaway of these, um, of the, these distinctions that he makes between the various types of literature, but, um, that, that's this early literature that's, uh, around, uh, for the first two years surrounding the development of the Christian, um, religion, but, Trevor, did you have any thoughts on how he viewed these different texts? What you thought was interesting about uh, about the you know his classification? How he classified anything you thought was missing? Well, I I seem to be looking at a mystery. Um, I mean, there seem to be two kind of uh, ways in which he'll delineate between authentic texts. Uh, uh, or one ways or two ways I should say in which he'll um, show that a text probably shouldn't be accepted. Uh, one way is he'll just say, look, no one else did. Like a lot of the earlier, he'll say, you know, Polycarp, or he'll mention some names. He'll basically say the rest of the church fathers didn't accept this text. So basically we shouldn't. And then the other thing is he uses this phrase, uh, 
at one juncture where he says something like, this shouldn't be accepted because it obviously doesn't teach apostolic orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And it's, so it's, it's unspoken what he means by this. I could only assume at what doctrines are specifically being referred to when he says something like that. But it seems like there's an unspoken kind of body of doctrines which are considered apostolic orthodoxy, which you know these texts obviously don't have and these ones obviously do have. And so he does just – he'll just judge a text – purely based on its content alone and um, and by this standard, which it doesn't, you know, explicitly write out what that standard is, but there was one, which is interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and you keep using the word standard and it should be reiterated here again. Um, when he talks about, we have not regarded as canonical um, second Peter canonical. Um, although now we use it to sort of refer to scripture, it just comes from uh, the Greek rule, word for rule. So we have not regarded it as following the rule, which is this apostolic orthodoxy. And we've talked about um, the early, the earliest rule that we're aware of is basically, um, we saw it very early in Irenaeus where he talks about the rule of faith, possibly also in Clement of Rome. But but basically, whether or not it teaches um, sort of the Apostles' Creed is the best other, the, the earliest, best summary. Um, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, uh, died under Pontius, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and resurrected. Uh, basically, do they teach these this foundational um, belief um, as as and so that's sort of this canonical rule. Does it fit the rule? Does it fit this um, idea? One thing that I always emphasize when people ask me about the development of the canon is what place does it have in the church? Um, and so not so much in this first section, but uh, also um, later on. So in the, I, I'm referencing like almost like the first chapter there. Um, but in, uh, in chapter 25 is the next place that he talks about what is can- canonical or non-canonical writings and he talks about whether or not it's read in church. Um, and so basically, as far as I can tell for him, basically the deciding factors for him, whether or not he wants to call it canonical, whether once he wants to call it scripture, or whether or not it fits uh, this rule, um, whether or not it's read in the church. Do when, when Christians gather together, are they reading this or are they not? Um, and he, he sort of says that Shepherd of Hermas is one – where some churches do, some churches don't, so he doesn't want to keep it. Um, plus, he he thinks that it's only the other the other major um, criterion uh, is whether or not the early theologians quoted it. Um, and so, some early <coughs> theologians quote Shepherd of Her- Hermas, others don't. Um, and so, these are the big markers for me um, uh, that that I see when he's trying to decide whether or not he wants to consider something um, canonical. Uh, is is this was it read in the church? So when Christians gather, do they say, "Look, this has got um, this has got inspiration. This comes from God. This is more than just um, you know a nice thing to read. This is more than just C.S. Lewis. This is more than just um, mm-hmm. you know something that that Christians can be edified by, but it actually has some divine origin." Yeah, and authorship. I should have said that was that was also important to him. He'll even say things like the Epistle to the Hebrews. He says 
Um, some dispute it because they'll say, look, this isn't written by Paul. Then he kind of goes into the, you know, who, who did author this epistle and it does seem useful. And, you know, he, he kind of goes into that. So there's also, what was it? Uh, he calls it John's, what's his, what's his word for it? He doesn't call it revelation. He calls apocalypse. it John's, oh, John's apocalypse. Yeah, mm -hmm. that was it. Um, it was the same thing. He goes, people don't know what to do with this one yet. And uh, I'm assuming he, he's saying that because of its lateness or like when it was written as well. So there's, so he, he considers authorship and uh, when something occurs. Um, but there's interesting things like, for example, you go to chapter 16 and he takes the time to talk about the epistle of Clement. And I remember when we had our very first podcast, we read this epistle. And the first episode, we kind of got into a canon talk because I was sitting there saying, you know, why why isn't this scripture, right? And, and one of the things we talked about is how Clement himself refers to um, some verses from uh, Paul – Pauline letters and seems to refer to them as scripture and as authoritative. And I, I was just, he doesn't now I'm not saying Eusebius doesn't come out and say the epistle of Clement is on the same level at all, but it's interesting that he goes through to even take the epistle of Clement and then show which one is considered legit and which ones aren't considered legit. And he also takes time to talk about, how it is a trustworthy witness um, to basically doctrine. And so, I I mean, and if he's holding, and this kind of connects to our discussion of apostolic succession, if he's holding that, um, holding it dear, right, that Clement is within this apostolic line, he, he does treat him as some authority. And so it does seem to me like that if he cares enough to distinguish what is authentic Clement, and considers him within the apostolic succession, there is some sense in which he considers, at least this is what I got from the reading, there's some extent to which he considers the epistle of Clement authoritative, but I don't know. What what would historians normally say about this? Yeah, um, it's also interesting to note here, so again, we're, <laughs> we're discussing a book uh, that's written in the early 4th century. Um, we're, we're not sure exactly when it was written, um, but, um, you know, 310, 315, somewhere around this time. And part of what um, Eusebius is doing, if we look at the, so, uh, so the course of this book three, a lot of it has to do with persecution. A lot of it has to do with what the Romans were doing to both Jewish people and Christian people. And as he, he goes through and he says, okay, how do we know what happened to the Jewish people? Well, we look at um, Josephus. We look at Flavius Josephus. So, and then he gives he gives a little bit about Josephus's background, and he says, "Well, he was a Jew who fought against the Romans, against Titus, um, and then he was taken in prison, or he was imprisoned, um, and because of his because of his qualifications, because he knew Greek, um, he basically is a good person to tell us uh, tell the Romans about the Jews." And so, there's a lot of contemporary debate about. Um, how precise uh, we should consider Josephus, but Eusebius uses him and he says, okay, we need to trust 
what Eusebius says about, or excuse me, we need to trust what Flavius Josephus says, what Josephus says about the Jewish history, and here's why, and then here's what he says. And it's kind of the same thing that he's doing with Christian scripture, although his, um, when he talks about Christian scripture, he has to give a little bit more of a justification. It's a more important um, to him than Josephus, but it, it's still in this mind as a hist- of a historian who has to work through his sources. And so he has, he actually has like sort of three levels of, um, of texts for the church. He has those that are undisputed, those that are disputed, and those that are heretical. Um, and so he thinks that Second Peter is a disputed book, like Shepherd of Hermas, which may or may not really fit in with, say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or the uh, letters of Paul. And then he says, really, Second Peter should be considered with Hermas, um, the Didache, which we read, or the Didache, which we read, and uh, and a few others like that. And he says, now those are affirming of all the Christian teaching. They're just uh, there's dispute over whether or not they should be read. And he just lays out uh, where all this is and why, you know, where it all happens. And then he says like gospel of Thomas, um, gospel of Peter, a gospel mm-hmm. of Mary Magdalene, that stuff isn't even, doesn't even teach the same thing. So that's kind of interesting. That's what a historian does when they go through the sources. They say, how reliable are these? How trustworthy are these? Are these? Right. And it's also extremely important um, from, you know, we talked about this angle of the overlap between theology and history for Eusebius, um, in order for something to be scripture, it has to attest to one historical event, most importantly. Um, so maybe even the most important, histo- uh, theological cr- criteria is also a historical criterion. Does it, uh, teach what actually happened historically? Um, and, and that would be the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but I, I still wonder about why, I mean, if you think about it, it is kind of strange that someone like Paul, for example, ends up kind of defining, um, well, well, he defines a lot of doctrine, but we also, just use everything he writes as a gold standard when the church does seem as very concerned about apostolic succession at the time. Now the apostles did accept Paul. So there's a way in which, and they accepted the letters of Paul and the letters were read. So, I mean, I know that there's a practical way in which we know why Paul got to where Paul got, but it is strange. I mean, wasn't, you know, one of the 12 walking with Jesus when he was alive. He was someone who was converted later. He had a miraculous experience, right? Um, and, uh, you know, according to him, he saw the risen Lord. So there is there is that, but it, it is strange because then when you go to someone like Clement, and that's why I just brought it up, it's like, well, you know, this guy's just also another Christian. I mean, he didn't – he's – when you really look at him and Paul – I mean, the difference is no one's reading First Clement in all their churches, really. Like, but when you just read Clement, I mean, we talked about this first episode. Other than embarrassing things like a believing in a phoenix that's actually flying around, um, or something like that. I really, when you read it, you're like, yeah, this could be any other epistle. I mean, in a lot of ways, it has the same type of encouragements. It teaches orthodoxy as far as you know we can say anything's orthodox so 
I guess that's the that's the interesting rub here, and it's it's a uh, it's kind of that's the part about uh, you know canon formation that I find interesting. I once, for example, uh, I think we've talked about on this podcast before, Saeed, who mm-hmm. is in prison, right? Okay, so I once heard someone say something like, "What if Saeed wrote us a letter?" And he's like. Like from prison, just like Paul wrote a letter from prison. He goes, we could read that in church, right? And like, that'd be fine. And it would just be the same thing. And I remember, I mean, a lot of us all had a very strong reaction to that. We're like, no, it would not be the same thing. And, um, you know, unless, depending on your denomination, you you might have a different answer for why it's not the same thing, of course. Uh, but when I look at like some of these really early guys like Clement, I, I'm wondering, literally, I'm trying to get into the mind of the church at the time, like, but why didn't they say it was the same thing, you know? I mean, he still holds Clement up to some degree, but why still was it not held as the same on any same regard? I mean, is it simply because it wasn't read? I mean, is that well, and an answer? That's a- that's a great question. I mean, one, one way that I would respond to it, and we've mentioned it a little bit, uh, basically, <clears throat> uh, let's see. So Matthew uh, is a disciple. John's a disciple. Mark's gospel is supposed to be Peter's gospel. Um, mm-hmm. the, uh, and aside from the Pauline epistles, which are half of the New Testament, <laughs> uh, Ju- Jude, for instance, gets into the canon because he's the brother of Jesus. James as well. Um, and actually it's interesting when he goes into apostolic succession, which he, he discusses at length, the first, uh, succession that he talks about is Jerusalem. Um, so he, he, and now it also fits within the historical context. I don't know that he's necessarily making, um, the claim that it is the most important bishopric, uh, but he mentions all four that we've talked about, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Rome. Um, and he, he doesn't obviously favor Rome, uh, like um, Irenaeus kind of seems to, um, but uh, or well, Irenaeus seems to. Uh, let, I'll just say that. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, so, but but uh, but the difference. So each, so everyone gets included in Scripture because either they walked with Jesus or they were re- related to Jesus, except for Paul. So what makes Paul different? Well, the. Uh, the, the road to Damascus. So his conversion experience, he calls himself an apostle, one who is sent out um, in the same way uh, of the disciples when they become apostles. You know, they were disciples, they were students, and then they are sent out to be teachers, the Great Commission, that sort of thing. So Paul um, is sort of, he's sort of uh, added in um, because he has this special calling from God, you know, so he's not there walking with Jesus, but whatever he goes through, um, you know, it's sort of curious. It allows him to be speak authoritatively from God, um, in a way that, that none of the other writings or the writers get to claim. So he's not part of that, uh, you know, in a way he's a part of that original generation and in a way he's not, um, but actually that's, and that's how Luke acts gets in because Luke acts are, are, are identified with Paul. Um, right. And, but I find Paul such a fascinating figure in all of this because later we'll see that Constantine draws heavily on the fact 
um, for like Constantine, the way that Eusebius describes Constantine, and we'll get into this later, but is almost a kind of Messiah figure, or he considers himself another kind of apostle, and he's able to do that because of the experience of Paul. Um, and and also Paul becomes, Paul also is like the way that all of us, and I think this is maybe the power of Paul, Paul is the way all of us get to feel close to that first generation because he wasn't present physically, uh, but by his conversion, he is, and he becomes one. Now he becomes the type that all of us follow after. Um, to some degree, uh, Constantine follows after him. To some degree, Augustine follows after him. All of us talk about this radical conversion experience, and it's largely because of the paradigm of Paul. So he gets to be scripture and be separate, but be unique, um, and, and the type which all of us follow after. So he's a very, you know, I mean, he's, he's a, a liminal figure. He's not technically part of that generation in terms of being with Jesus, but he's the age of it, um, has this special conversion experience where all of us can sort of put ourselves um, close to it. Yeah, and I have heard as well um, some other theologians talk about how Paul actually does defend his apostle status because he's seen the risen Lord, which is sort of this unofficial qualification for being an apostle. Uh, so, yeah, but, you know, it's weird because, yeah, I there is a way in which also it is seemingly a practical thing he wrote the most and his letters seem to get around the most because you think about that obscure like apostle was it matthias who got like kind of elected to fill in judas iscariot's place Mm -hmm. it's like i mean he was like officially elected right and they laid hands on him and everything and you're wondering like you know if he wrote something would it have you know basically would it have gotten in and is that really just, you know, one of the more practical differences is Paul wrote and other people didn't. So I I sometimes wonder about that. Well, I mean, as we talked about Clement wrote and the, we don't know who wrote the Didache or Didache, which could be why it's not in, but other people are writing. I mean, and, and so, okay. So the last thing that I will say, which is curious because of its absence um, is Eusebius never mentions the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so this so so this is one thing whenever I've taught the formation of the canon, a lot of times people will just say, and I'm not saying that this isn't true. Don't get me wrong. His, the evidence does not demonstrate it in terms of what was actually written down. That doesn't mean it's theologically untrue, which is so which usually the claim is, we know what scripture is because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides the process or the Holy Spirit speaks in these scriptures. It's just curious that that's never stated. Yeah. And so I don't mean to say that it isn't true. I, I actually, I mean, I, I guess I believe that it is true because I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work no matter what. Um, so of course I think it's true. And maybe, maybe it's just so obvious to them that they don't need to write it down. Um, but it is worth noting that that at least you know Eusebius does not mention that. It, well, you know, and and uh, we've sort of mentioned how there's sort of a deficient 
um, understanding of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk about that when we get to Nicaea shortly, which leaves a lot out uh, of the Holy Spirit. And it's not until the later fourth century that a, uh, a better theology of the Holy Spirit is developed. But, uh, but yeah, I just always find that interesting that you don't see in the source texts a lot of discussion of the influence of the Holy Spirit in the development of the canon. Yeah, no, the Holy Spirit, I mean, yeah, if you're going to talk about canon, often especially in a, I think, a Protestant context, it is just, you know, you could you, you say the Holy Spirit or you literally just come out and say, look, God guided the canonization process. And though, you know, Scripture doesn't even refer to itself in that in such a way, other than a lot of people take the verse about it being God breathed. Other than that verse, a lot of people just kind of, it's, it's just, yeah, one of those kind of assumptions that you hear often stated and taught. So, yeah, I mean, in a way, being a Christian, yeah, I would like to say something like, yeah, God basically did in however you define this basically god essentially gave us the bible we have however whatever that means and however that happened um that is what happened but it is it is interesting to look at like just kind of what the people or try to get into the mind of the people like like because sometimes it almost does seem yeah it's not like a perfectly consistent standard that they just applied the whole time. I mean, that's just what we obviously know isn't true. And that's that's the interesting part is it wasn't just this strict, well-written about standard that they were just always looking through like, oh, nope, it meets this, but not that. And, you know, and so it was, it does seem a little weird, but. um, Yeah, I tend to think that some of that is the influence of sort of the scientific method um, and uh, sort of our, you know, late, maybe, you know, 18th century forward uh, sort of enlightenment mindset where we want everything written out. We want to test everything by a hypothesis. Um, we want to be clear about all these things. Um, and there is, it's, it's a much more organic process. Uh, and I'm not, you know, Eusebius isn't the sole arbiter of this. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll read, um, well, we'll read, uh, Augustine mentions some lists um, Athanasius mentions a list. I mean, there's a few of these different lists of the, of the canon. None of them are as thorough in a way as Eusebius is. And that's why <clears throat> we're going to, we're not going to read all of ecclesiastical history on this podcast, but I wanted to include this particular book, um, because it's kind of a landmark section, um, that gives us some idea. The other, the other thing, um, the other sort of reason, uh, that, or that a lot of people discuss is this, uh, Muraturian fragment or Muraturian ca- canon, which is one other early list, um, which we haven't discussed much because it's basically only that it's this fragment that has a list of books. Um, and as I recall, the ones mentioned mi- missing would be our Jude and revelation. Um, and I could have gotten that wrong. This is off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure those two, um, <clears throat> maybe James as well. Um, but, um, you know, but basically, you know, here we have a, but that was just a fragment here. We have a lot written out and stated as to, you know, as Eusebius looks through all of the documents that he has at his disposal, um, 
and he says, okay, I'm including these and not others for these reasons. You know, we, uh, this is where we have it. Yeah. And you know, I wonder sometimes also if we, we talked about being an organic or you mentioned it being an organic process and, I also think part of it may have been that they did just trust the church. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way in which is hard for us to picture now being so fractured, but in a way in which, you know, the Orthodox or the Catholic Church would say the same thing now. I mean, essentially, especially the Catholic Church, because the Catholic answer is just that, yeah, the church is authoritative. The church decided what was scripture. There you go. That's, you know, that's the end of it. And I... Sometimes I think maybe if I was a, you know, second century or first century Christian and I get into that mindset, you would just trust the church. And whoever is your presbyter or what episcopos would it a, would your bishop teach? I, I never even it, it looks like it probably depends not only on the region that you're in, um, but um but yeah, uh, I mean, okay. the bishop would, you know, I mean, Augustine was bishop. Um, and okay. Yeah, so I mean, it, it does depend. Priests, well, you know, it, it, as far as we can tell, Origen never got above the um, level of deacon, I think. Um, and he clearly taught a lot. Uh, but that, yeah, so you could, you could be preached to by deacons, um, presbyters, oh. priests, or episcopoi. Okay, well, so whoever it be in your church then, that was just a fun aside. I had always wondered that. Um, because mostly because reading Eusebius, he does refer to him as like the ruler of that church. So I wondered how, if there were more government, less teaching. But um, but yeah, I could, I could, like when I try to get in the mind of like, yeah, these first century Christians, especially if you're like a new Christian just coming to the church, you probably would just say, look, he read Paul last Sunday. And so Paul's scripture, I mean, I mean, you know, realistically, it does seem like one of those things where the church kind of decided, and I think it, it wouldn't be wrong wholly to say that, that I think, in fact, really, that should be something all denominations would and could affirm, basically, is that the church kind of did pick canon. Yeah. I mean, whether you believe that's, you know, big C or small C Catholic church, so... Yeah. And one other thing, that, you know, and again, we don't have, there's no, no proper split between East and West um, really until 1054. Um, I mean, there's, there's kind of in the intervening period uh, after kind of in the sixth, seventh centuries, there's slow um, distinction between them as the Roman empire um, splits apart uh, because of the um, invasions of the, um, the Gaul or the the Germanic tribes and stuff like that. There is sort of there begins to be a practical split before there's even an official split. Um, but there's no such thing as a Roman Catholic Church. There's no such thing as a Greek Orthodox Church. You know, not, none of these things at this point. There are just a bunch of local communities, and we haven't even at this point we haven't even had our first ecumenical council, Nicaea in 325. Um, so all the stuff that we're talking about are these just individual communities. And, you know, maybe what's as, you know, what's maybe even more amazing than specifically saying like that there was a group that got together and decided is there are different lists like the Mauritarian canon um, or fragment comes up in Italy. Um, Eusebius is writing in Asia Minor. 
Um, you know, Augustine will be in North Africa. Um, the lists look remarkably the same. Um, for, for all of their divergences, you have Christians from three different continents, um, the only three continents known to exist at the time, really, um, and uh, you know, that being Asia, Europe, and um, Africa. And you have, you have them all having remarkably similar lists. Yeah, there may be some marginal differences over Shepherd of Hermas um, or um, Second Peter, uh, but, you know, but on the whole, uh, there's a fairly consistent um, affirmation. It's not perfect, um, but uh, and until late, I mean, until a little later, uh, but even, I mean, even at that rate, um, the whole question of the deuterocanonicals, the, the, um, the, the, basically the end of the Septuagint, the Greek writings, the Greek Old Testament, or Tobit, to, uh, uh, Maccabees, uh, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, all these books, they're not officially called canon in the West until the 16th century. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but there's remarkable agreement um, in, in all the different con- continents um, over what these, these books should be. Um, the other, the other, he spends a lot of time talking about John um, and the importance of John. I wanted to mention that he, uh, in uh, chapter 23, he talks about, uh, this is actually a quote from Clement um, of Alexandria. Uh, John says, uh, when he had finished his mission, he says, come now, Bishop, return the deposit that Christ and I left in your keeping with the church as a witness. Um, so he talks about this deposit that Christ left. Um, and this is supposed to be, so this is a phrase that you'll hear a lot of Roman Catholics talk about. There was a deposit of faith given to Peter, um, and that is essentially all Christian truth. Um, and this will be extrapolated and explained in different ways um, once we get into the medieval period. But there was a deposit of faith given to Peter. Um, here, interestingly, it's John, not not even mentioning Peter. Um, yeah. Uh, so, but uh, but nevertheless, the concept is still there that Christ leaves a deposit with the church, um, and Peter, as as the head of the church, um, receives this. This usually is is at Pentecost, um, and and this, you know, again, this will be this will be integral to debates that we will come to um, in the in the medieval West. Yeah, that's interesting. Um... I had never heard of this idea until just right now, so I am not familiar with it. But. Well, er, and Aquinas will say that um, all truth was given to Peter, that it was necessary except for what had to be logically expounded or extrapolated. Um, so it's mm-hmm. not as if Peter knew all Christian teaching exactly as it would be expressed. Um, and so he says, well, whatever could be logically extrapolated um, from what was given to Peter. Or, and then John Henry Newman in the 19th century famously says, if it passes these tests, if it develops from the de- deposit of faith. And there's a bunch of debate around that. But basically, all Christian truth was supposed to have been given to Peter in some way, in nuce, sometimes it's said, in nut form. Um, in a, or, you know, sort of like a, sort of like a seed form. And, uh, that's, that is the deposit of faith that's supposed to be kept by the church without error since the time of Peter, which is a debatable point. Um, right. Yeah. 
But That's interesting, though. Yeah, I see now why this would be a curious passage then, because, yeah, it's about John, but it's still this deposit of faith. That's, that is interesting. Yeah, so if it, if it turns out that a pope ever be, is heretical, um, or if the church ever te- taught something heretical, um, then it really is, uh, at least from a Roman Catholic perspective, it could be potentially problematic because it'll contradict the deposit of faith that was supposed to be kept for all time uh, by the um, Bishop of Rome. Um, and again, like I said, there are various ways that this is dealt with and explained. Uh, Protestants don't happen to have this problem. Um, we don't believe in the deposit of faith, we, but we have, you know, what some have called the paper Pope. Um, so we have the, the problems of scripture and other things. Um, so we're, we're not, uh, you know, I'm not trying to, to throw Roman Catholicism under the bus. Uh, surely Protestants have their own, uh, issues to deal with. Uh, but this is one that that that's really important. I mean, we'll get to Vincent uh, Vincent of Lorraine too, who tries to handle this. Um, and part of the the good thing, if the deposit works, if you if the deposit is right, this is how you can say this is what Christians have at all times and in all places and everywhere have believed. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so, how do you know someone is uh, saved? Well, do they believe what the church has all, always taught? Uh, or what scripture always says, or what has always been true, um, and so there is there is a kind of power of this if it's you know if you can find a way to explain it, um, or you know, it, or to understand it. Yeah, and I think last time we talked about unity, we tried to uh, even mention a way in which this is a thing that we sort of are already striving after because you hear about these interdenominational like meetings and conferences and groups that are getting together, trying to unite and uh, you know, finding the things we have in common, sort of the different doctrines that we find as core because the church is always taught, but I've never heard the deposit of faith language though. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, like I said, it becomes critical in later debates, but yeah. It's really more of a Catholic issue. Yeah, well, we, yeah, so, I mean, I think we discussed it a little bit, but uh, Eusebius, um, without compunction, mentions Jesus' family um, and says that um, the Roman emperors uh, tried to kill off any descendants of David, specifically related to the family of Jesus, um, and mentions James as the brother of Jesus, um, as well as Jude, I believe. Um, so, you know, uh, this we we haven't read. Uh, we we will read Jerome's on the perpetual virginity of Mary, um, but um, as far as Eusebius is concerned, uh, there's no problem in saying that Mary had other children. Yeah, yeah, there. Yeah, that was about it then. I think. Thanks for listening to a history of Christian theology. We'll be back again next week. Uh, And check us out on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology.